A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. All right, The Darkness have a new album out, The Last of Our Kind, and they're ready to kick off the Blast of Our Kind world tour in America and Canada next Friday, October 9th. First stop, The Glass House in Pomona, just outside of Los Angeles. And today, crazy man singer Justin Hawkins joins TIJ, and he is every bit the crazy rock and roll frontman you think he might be. Wait till you hear his philosophy on critics and reviews and his argument and idea to change his band's name, like now. He wants to change the name. Yeah, exactly. He's also talking about his infamous cat suit, uh, riding a giant penis over top of the audience, his love of Queen, the band's new drummer, Rufus Tiger Taylor, who happens to be the son of Queen drummer Roger Taylor, and touring with Lady Gaga, the reactions they got and didn't get. And if that's not enough rock and roll for you, I also got Brian Slagle, the CEO of Metal Blade Records and one of the architects of the early version of Metallica. He's sharing stories about Metallica's Cliff Burton here on uh, just after the 29th anniversary of Cliff's untimely passing. Brian was kind of like the fifth member of early Metallica in a way that George Martin was like the fifth member of the Beatles. He actually helped get Cliff into Metallica. So lots of rock talk today. Lots of rock and roll coming. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pod of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived, and it's Friday. How awesome is that? Today's... Today's show, Justin Hawkins from the Darkness actually has written a song called Friday. So it's perfect. It's a new Friday into the pantheon of talk is Jericho Fridays. Hey, man, today's Justin Hawkins episode is going to be amazing. And it's brought to you by Burger King. And that's right. Right now at Burger King, get the new extra long jalapeno cheese batter, cheese batter, cheese batter. Feel the flame with two all beef patties stacked with spicy jalapeno peppers. Now part of the two for 
for $5 deal only at Burger King. Limited time only. Restrictions apply. You got to go try it out. Taste it. Taste it. All right. Justin Hawkins from the darkness here today. But also, I told you guys uh, on last episode that I went and saw ACDC uh, at Dodger Stadium, Los Angeles. And while I was in L.A., I went uh, down to Metal Blade Records and hung out with my buddy Brian Slagle, the CEO of Metal Blade Records. He created Metal Blade way back in 1981 when he started the Metal Massacre compilation. Uh, a, a good friend of his that he had just met called Lars Ulrich had uh, asked him to, if he can have a, a spot in that compilation. And that's how Brian and Lars became friends uh, in an early, early, early version of Metallica. Brian was there when Dave Mustaine was in the band. Brian was there when Ron McGovney was in the band, the original bass player. And when they decided to get rid of Ron, Brian tipped Lars and James off to Cliff Burton, uh, one of the greatest bass players of all time and a true early, early, early pioneer and architect of Metallica. Helped Metallica become what they are on their first three records, Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. They were riding high. Cliff was on top of the world when he was killed in a tragic bus accident on September 27th, 1986. I remember that time. I remember exactly what happened. I'm going to talk about it with Brian. Uh, here we are, just passing the 29th anniversary of that sad, sad day. So in tribute to Cliff Burton, one of my all-time rock and roll heroes, and kind of an enigma. He was taken far too soon. Not a lot of people knew Cliff, but Brian Slagle did know Cliff. Here's my conversation and the memories of Cliff Burton with Brian Slagle. Okay, so uh, after 30 years of being a, a fan of Metal Blade Records, I finally get to come to Metal Blade uh, offices with the uh, CEO, Brian Slagle, is here. And it's cool to be. This is a pretty prestigious office in here, man. Well, this is our, our B office. The, the main office is, is a different one, but this is the B kind of meeting, hanging out by the beach office. Okay, so this is like your guest house. Your guest <laughs> yeah, house exactly. Office. Exactly. The beach house. <laughs> yeah, the beach house, right, because you can actually see the you beach from here. You can actually see the beach. But, but it's really poignant because I was think, thinking the other day, uh, September 27th, or 26th, 27th, uh, 2015, the 29th anniversary of the death of, of, of Cliff Burton. Which is crazy it's been that long. Unbelievable. It's like insane. You know, and the thing is, you've been involved, like I kind of say in a lot of ways, you know, George Martin was the fifth Mar member of the Beatles <laughs> or Brian Epstein. You were kind of like the fifth member of Metallica in the early days of the band in helping Metallica begin and kind of getting their first deal on Metal Massacre and all that sort of thing. And being a, a lifelong Cliff Burton fanatic, I wanted to talk to you about Cliff because... You knew him fairly well. Yep. And one of the few guys that can actually say that, and you know it's true. Yeah, it's uh, it's a kind of a funny, well, all these stories are kind of funny how they, when you look back at how these things happened. But uh, I got a tape from a band in San Francisco called Trauma uh, for Metal Massacre 2 after we put out Metal Massacre 1. So you put out Metal Massacre just because kind of like an indie thing and got a bunch of bands that were in, in the area, put them on the album. The, the real quick story was I was working at a record label. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to get a record shop. There were no record labels back yeah. then. But there uh, were we record were, shops. Yes. There's no record shops now. Not anymore. <laughs> uh, so I was working there and, and I was bringing in all the new wave of British heavy metal stuff. And then somebody said, hey, you know, there's some good bands playing around LA. I'm like, really? So the, one of the first shows I saw was uh, Troubadour Wednesday night for a dollar, Motley Crue and Rat. What? A dollar? For a dollar on a Holy Wednesday night. smokes, man. So I just, you know, these bands were playing in L.A. And nobody knew that they existed. Nobody cared. So I was kind of, I thought, well, to give them some sort of exposure, kind of based on the new wave of British heavy metal and the do-it-yourself attitude, I was like, well, maybe I'll just put together a compilation album of local L.A. heavy metal bands. And so long story short, I was ended up doing it. Uh, 
putting it out. Uh, Motley Crue was supposed to be on it, by the way, and they dropped out at the last second because I had actually helped them get distribution for their album. No kidding. That's a whole other story. Yeah, there are two managers, these guys, Kaufman and Kaufman, came to my mom's house, sat on the couch and said, hey, we made up 900 Motley Crue records. What do we do with them? <laughs> I said, oh, you should take them to the distributor down there and they'll help you. If, if I only knew great. then what I knew well, now, you know, right? Yeah. But uh, so anyway, so the record came out and then, you know, my friend Lars, who I'd known for a while because we were both big music fans and hung out, said, hey, if I put together a band, can I be in your record? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, that, of course, so you, do you have a spot on your record? Do you have a band? Yep. Nobody will find one, basically. Well, it was, it was him and James were just kind of hanging out playing and they couldn't find anybody else to play in the band because at that point, you know, L.A. was kind of getting a little more, you know, poppy. So they didn't, band sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, so they didn't do anything and they stopped kind of hanging out and rehearsing. So Lars, when... I put up this, put together this compilation. I mean, thought, oh, this is the way to get with James because back in 1982, being on a record was a big deal. I mean, now, sure, you know, everybody's on a record, but back then it was not that simple. So Lars went to James and said, "Hey, if if we put together a song, we can be on this compilation." All my friends putting out. I said, "Okay." So the first version of "Hit the Lights." was just Lars and James, and um, James' guitar teacher, Lloyd Grant, played the lead. And the, Black the other guy two with played the big everything. dreadlocks, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I put out that record, and it did pretty well, and all of a sudden people started to you know, say, hey, we want to be on your record. I started getting tons and tons of demos, and bands wanted to be on it. And one of those bands was this band from Trauma, I mean from San Francisco, called Trauma. And uh, their bass player, of course, was Cliff Burton. So the, I had never talked to anybody in the band. I was, they had a management company that had kind of spent some money to do the demo. And they brought them to L.A. to play at, again, the Troubadour, which was, that was kind of the spot back then. And I saw them. And the band was okay, but the bass player was incredible. Mm. So I was like, wow, this guy's really so, good. So w- w- what kind of a band were they? Just like a typical stock yeah, rock band? Pretty pretty typical early 80s kind of semi-European influenced metal so band. So what's Cliff doing to just blow your mind? Well, it was weird because the band didn't were all disjointed. Like the singer looked one way, the guitar player's looking another way, the drummer. But Cliff was this commanding presence on stage, as you see him mm-hmm. afterwards. Right. You know, look, same look. Big, you know, bell bottoms and the denim jacket. Teenage Looked mustache. completely different from everybody else in the band. And, and was just headbanging crazy. And that's the thing, quickly. Cliff Burton at that time, like, you know, bell bottoms and the one length long hair, the plaid. Like, nobody dressed like that. Like, in 1985, 86, you know, 84, heavy metal hair was the bangs cut, cut at the eyes, leather tight jeans and here's a guy with bell bottoms he looked like he was like from 1969 totally and, but he commanded that stage mm. i was like wow this guy's really good uh and like i said the band was eh, but he was amazing so as fate would have it a couple two three four weeks later uh hanging out with lars and lars said hey i think we're gonna make a change for a bass player I was like, really? I love Ron. Ron's a great guy. Ron McGovern, he was the original bass player. But those guys were getting better musically, and Ron was not quite getting Keep there as they were it, making yeah. new material, especially when Mustaine got in the band because he was really good. So he said, you know, we're going to make a change. Do you know anybody? I said, ah, it's funny you should ask. So you guys should come because Trauma had to set up another show at the Troubadour in L.A. for maybe, I don't know, two or three weeks after I talked to Lars, about two months after the the first time I saw them, and this is after the Metal Masker record had come out. So I said, you guys should come see this band, Trauma, because their bass player is really good. He's like, all right. So here we go. Two, three weeks later, Trauma plays the Troubadour. Lars and James are both there. And maybe 15 minutes into 
or maybe even less, 10 minutes into trauma set, Lars leans over and says, that guy's going to be in my band. Hmm. Like, okay, whatever you say, <laughs> Lars. Uh, but when Lars says something, you know, right. even today, it usually happens. It makes it happen, yeah. It's amazing. So... Sure enough, they talked to him right after the show, and he was a little bit like, eh, you know, I mean, he was kind of the main guy. I think it was him and the singer were the two main guys in, in that band. He's like, yeah, I don't really know, but they they kept on him and just kept on him and on him and on him, and eventually they kind of wore him down, I think, and he's like, all right, well, sure, if you guys move to San Francisco, I'm in. So they moved to San Francisco specifically to get Cliff. It's exactly what they the did. Deal. But, you know, they were in L.A. They were definitely not. The scene in L.A. was, was getting much more Motley Crue rat pop sort of stuff. And Metallica right. was nobody knew what to make of them. They were super heavy and they played mostly, you know, punk covers and, you know, Motorhead and Diamond Head covers. And people had no so idea what to make of, of them. Yeah. So they weren't really getting a response here. And I had done a uh, Metal Masker show in San Francisco. And it was a uh, bitch Metallica and Sir Dungle was supposed to go and they bagged out at the last minute so some horrible local band played in San Francisco but when Metallica got to San Francisco people went nuts mm. I mean that show was there were probably 200 250 people there and they went crazy for Metallica unlike anything they had seen in LA so them moving to San Francisco wasn't kind of just well we're you know we're doing this out of the blue they'd been there a couple of times they started to have a bit of a following up there and way better than they had here and you know those guys had nothing to lose to go up there so so what was it for, for cliff to finally join metallica do you think did he see something there i think once he saw them play up in san francisco and kind of saw there's something happening here and, and with trauma you know he was a smart guy and with trauma you know they kind of had a little bit going on but not nearly what metallica had going on and just in terms of of playing shows and having mm -hmm. the reaction for the kids because you know no, at that time nobody had anything going on really. right 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 uh but i think he saw that and saw that there, there was a potential but he did not want to leave san francisco so i i think i mean we kind of talked about this and and i he never really said it but i think in the back of my mind he just thought that I'll just tell them, you've moved to San Francisco and will be in your band thinking that they would never do it. Right. And sure enough, they did. It's the classic thing. If you don't want to do something, just give some ridiculous price. Exactly. You know, pay me $1 million and I'll do it. All right, there's $1 million. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's how it works. So what was, what was Cliff like as a guy? Did you know him fairly well? Did you ever yeah, hang out with him at I hung out with him a lot. Um, he was really interesting because he was very, very shy. So him and James kind of... Because James really was also good very shy. Exactly. But they also shared a love of music, and they loved a lot of the same music. But Cliff was really interesting, because Cliff was a big-time metal guy, but he also liked all sorts of different types of music. He loved Waylon Jennings. He loved you know, classical, just a lot of different stuff. So R.E.M., I know he was into that. Yeah, he was yeah. a really well-rounded guy in terms of music, which was really interesting because most of the metal people back then were just like, you know, we're only into what we like and that's it. Nothing, There is nothing else. That's what I was like. Yeah, yeah you can't like Duran Duran or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of like some of the new wave stuff and a few other things, the, the punk movie that was here on the West Coast a little bit. So I, I was kind of not completely You weren't completely zoned so in. metal, yeah. Yeah, uh, Iron Maiden kind of changed that, but it's a whole other story. <laughs> Uh, so he liked a lot of different stuff, but super chill guy, really, really smart. I think that's the one thing that, that people may not get from a lot of the interviews, but incredibly smart guy. I mean, you would sit and talk to him, just, you know, not even just about music, but about all sorts of other stuff. And he had really interesting insights and an outlook on what was going on. Really incredibly smart. And he, to me, you know, those first four Metallica records are what they are really a lot due to Cliff, because Cliff was the guy that. When Lars and James would do something, 
he would kind of hone it in. Like they'd take some idea and go crazy with it and he'd kind of hone it in and say, no, if we did this and kind of kept it at this level, it would be better. And I think you really can see that with Justice for All where that's certainly the most proggy record because they just, they were unrestrained. So let's, let's write a 12 minute long crazy song. Oh, so you're saying without Cliff there, then they could, they had the filter was gone. They could just do what they want. Ex- exactly. Exactly. Oh. So I think Cliff, Cliff had a, even though he didn't get a lot of writing credits on there, he had a lot to do with the song structures and kind of how things went. Uh, and I, that was, I mean, you see post Cliff passing away, what Metallica was like and what they were like there. And they're kind of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And Cliff had a massive role in that. I know when they were writing and recording stuff, they really, especially James, really looked at Cliff in terms of like, hey, is this okay? You know, how do you like this? Really? And yeah, there was kind of a lot of help up, there. Looked up to him sort of thing? Or, I think so. As the watermark? I, I think so a little bit. I think it was just another voice that he could really trust because they had very similar very similar personalities and also very similar backgrounds in music as well. Because it would seem too with Cliff being into Will and Jennings, I know he was a lot into Skinner and the Almonds and yep, that sort yep, of thing, yep. that he probably brought a real sense of melody to Metallica uh, as far as vocal vocal melodies go and that sort of a vibe. I think so. I mean, look, James is an unbelievable musician and he's a phenomenal piano player and I mean, he's a virtuoso for sure, but definitely Cliff there and having somebody that with, like I said, with that kind of different, a little bit of a different aspect of opinion of music was a really big help there. And just a, a great guy. I love talking with him. Like when I had a chance to kind of sit and chill with him because he we could just talk forever about about a variety of subjects that you like i said when you're you know 21 year old kid 22 year old kid there's a very finite <laughs> amount of things you're talking to people about and with cliff it was a whole different different scenario i was like wow this is really interesting you know he's got an interesting take on everything so like you're talking about backstage at shows did you guys have yeah just on the bus or, or the backstage bus. at shows or yeah. whatever so it was it was pretty interesting and he you know he partied like the rest of us did but for example when they were all living in san francisco he was still living at home so we didn't see him as much out hanging with those other dudes because after a show a lot of times he'd be like see ya oh okay <laughs> so did you ever see them at all I mean as they grew um, you know from, from Kill to Ride to Master and you're still part of the family right even yep. though they never signed to Metal Blade oh, yeah. you're still part of the gang did you go see them as they continue to grow and get bigger all the time I, yeah. I probably saw them 20-30 times on e- each of those tours as, as they got bigger was Cliff was always crazy. the same? Cliff was always the same Great, great guy. I mean, you, you see if you if you look at any of this stuff, you see his dad, Ray, who's like the greatest guy in the he world. He is the and, best, yeah. And, you know, Cliff was just like his dad, really never changed, same guy, super chill, just he was the best. I mean, it mm-hmm. just it's so crazy that whole thing happened. When it, when it happened, just everybody's kind of in shock. Where were you when, when you heard about this? Well, I was, of course, uh, here at home in, in L.A., and uh, this was way before the Internet and, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. Somebody from Europe called me. I got a call like 7 in the morning, and it wasn't unusual for that to happen because we had a distribution deal with Metal Roadrunner. Blade was really popular and happened in that time, Sure, and too, we had a yeah. distribution deal with Roadrunner in, in Europe and Music for Nation, so I would get these early morning calls because that's how you communicated back then <laughs> before computers and everything else. Yeah. So I got an early morning call from somebody, and they said, uh, hey, there was an accident last night with Metallica. I'm like, really? And they said, yeah. At this point, it wasn't completely confirmed, but somebody said that it was really bad. Cliff was hurt really bad. That's all we know. I'm like, really? Holy cow. Hmm. And maybe a couple hours later, somebody else called me and said, yeah, he passed away. I remember that day, too, because even going beyond that, I read about it in the newspaper. I don't even think think it came to pass on TV or anything like that because metal was underground. I'm living in Winnipeg, yep, Canada. Yep. I remember a little bird blurb, Clifford Lee Burton passed away, 24, and really start crying. 
like you know crying 15 years old i guess i was almost 16 but I, I, I used to hang out with this guy that was a big techno fan. He loved Depeche Mode, and I loved metal. That was always, like, we were friends. That was always kind of the contention between us. And I'll never forget, he made this really, really, really bad joke. I don't even know what the joke was. He, he said, oh, yeah, he goes, they got a new song called Trapped Under Bus. Oh. And, dude, I punched him in the face Good. as hard as I could. Good. I still remember he had his bus fare, and he fell into a, the puddle. Because it was like almost winter time and lost his bus fare. And I got on the bus and drove away. And he's like, you asshole, I lost my bus fare. And I was just like, I couldn't believe it. Just so sad and so bad, you know. But just shockwaves throughout the fan side of things. What was it like for you guys who knew him? Well, it was crazy. I mean, you know, you mentioned the newspaper thing. And that's, you know, because I had talked to a couple people beforehand. I mean, you know, when it happened. <clears throat> but really seeing it in, in press. Because it came up, I mean, it was maybe a day or two later. It was in the newspaper. And that's where it really kind of hit home. Yeah. It was just like, I, it's just surreal. I mean, at that point, you know, we didn't really, nobody knew anybody that had passed away from, from right. the whole scene. So yeah. he was kind of the first big guy. And just, I mean, really just shock. I mean, it's all I can say is just shock. I think for the next three or four days, are just kind of in, in a daze. And, you know, everybody's asking, you know, calling me and asking me, are they going to continue? Are they going to break up? Are they going to continue to go on? What's going to happen? I go, I have no idea. I mean, it's funny I think people, how those guys think. It's funny how know? people think, you know, three or four days later, are they going to break up? It's like, God, can they grieve and figure out what the hell just happened? You know what I mean? Like how people actually think about that first. Yeah. Well, they were so huge at that point, you know, and getting really much, really bigger and their fan base was yeah. so insane. I mean, I think, you know, that's selfish on their part, but surely, oh. sure. But it was, yeah, it was just weird. I mean, I just remember being in shock for like three or four days and did, just kind of, did you talk to Lars or James at that point in time? I talked to Lars. Well, they were still over in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, so they came back pretty quickly and then they had the funeral. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do, I couldn't do the funeral. Just, uh, too hard. I, well, number one, it was, it was going to be difficult for me to get to just for a variety of reasons. And it was, yeah, I, don't, I just would have been not your thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just would have been a, a bit of a mess, but, um, so maybe I talked to Lars briefly when he got back, uh, just briefly just say like, yeah, this, you know, this sucks. What was his mindset? Um, you know, it, it's funny, you know, Lars is, uh, you know, Lars is the businessman. So he kind of, you know, he was emotional, but not crazy emotional just cause I think he was trying to figure out what they were going to do. Yeah. So, and I didn't even ask him that. He's just like, thanks man. It's really terrible. It was a really quick conversation. Right. So maybe two weeks after that. So this is maybe, I mean, three or four weeks after Cliff had passed away, something like that. I get a call from Lars. He said, well, uh, we need a bass player. You know, anybody? Mm. And I was like, well, yeah, uh, Joey Vero would probably be the perfect guy from Armored Saint. But they'd already called Joe and he turned it down. Because at that point, Armored Saint and Metallica were still kind of, sort of, at the same it's level. It's so incredible to think I about, know. right? Yeah. So then I said, well, I know this guy, Jason Newstead, who's in one of our bands that would be perfect. And he said, oh, okay, cool. And then Flotsam and Jetsam was a metal blade band. Yep. And next thing you know, Jason Newstead is in Metallica. So you got so. Cliff in, <laughs> and then you got Jason in. Yeah, I know. Metallica bass player, dude. <laughs> but you know what's funny is that um, I saw, the first time I saw Metallica was November 1986, Playhouse Theater in Winnipeg. Oh, wow. Which would have been about six weeks after Cliff passed away. They wow. were back on stage yeah. with Newstead. So you never got to see the Cliff? I never did. And oh, here's the thing. Bad. I had tickets to see him twice. One time, uh, 86, uh, the uh, Vancouver World Expo was going on. And it was Ozzy and Metallica with Cliff. And I had tickets. My uncle was going to take me. And Ozzy got sick that night. Oh. And I was so mad. I was like, who cares about Ozzy? Metallica can still play. Can't Metallica still play? So I missed them that night. Oh. But it's okay. They're coming back in Winnipeg in November. 
I got tickets uh, for that, and then he passed away. So uh, I never got to see Cliff Burton. Well, that's too bad. They were a whole different animal with him on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love Jason, and he yeah. was a great player and a great guy for them, and, and certainly was the the guy in their biggest moments. But man, that band with Cliff was just a whole different animal, and they just were thicker, heavier, meaner. Uh, it just they were a devastating band from all fronts. Nobody has played bass before, during, or since Cliff Burton. Like I've never, I've never heard a bass player who plays like him. Yeah, it's tough. And you know, if you listen, when you listen to Jason playing, he played a lot differently than than Cliff did. Obviously, even just the fact with the pick, exactly. You know? And Robert though plays more like Cliff, and Robert yeah. is a is a great bass player. And he he's gone back and he plays, especially at old stuff. He plays it very similar with a similar sound to to the way Cliff did. So it's as close as you're going to probably get. He's probably the best guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, here's a question a lot of people ask and like to ask you as being kind of in the, in the scene and being an expert. Knowing all these guys, how would Metallica have turned out had Cliff not passed away? I personally think a lot different. In what way? I think that well, certainly they never would have made Saint Anger. That's that is for <laughs> but sure. Let, but let's not even go Saint Anger. You talk. Let's say let's say the Black Album. Well, you know that's a really interesting thing. Um, certainly, and just as for all would have been a little bit different uh, in terms of him being in there and having a, a creative say. I think. It would have been, even though I love that record, certainly would have sounded better because there would have been bass there. Because <laughs> yeah. the, really the, the reason there was no bass on that record is you had, as they're mixing it, you had James in one ear, more guitar, more guitar, more vocals, so that the fader goes up and Lars more drums. So the fader's going up in the drums and the guitars and the vocals and nobody's touching the bass fader. Right. So at the end of the mix, that's what they and got. And also basically. Bob Rock said that Jason's tone was very much the Lemmy Cliff tone, which blurs right in with, J- with James's tone. Well, yeah, that was, I think, a that problem when they, when they, if you turn the bass up on there, then yeah, the guitars become super muddy. Right. So when they got to, and, and look, they knew after they made that record, they had to make a change, which is why they got Bob Rock, and he had, he had done Motley Crue's sure. Doctor Feelgood, which yeah. sounded amazing. Yeah. And they said, we're going to make a great record. Um, so uh, Justice for All would, it would have been different. I think it would have been similar to probably Puppets a little bit mm-hmm. in some terms. And then the Black Album, you know, I don't know, that's really an interesting point there, how that would have been different. I don't know that it would have been hugely different, um, but I think that some of the, I mean, it could have even been better, I think, with, with Cliff there. And certainly the stuff they did afterwards would have been a lot different, I, I think. But, you know, you never know. I mean, see, it, seem, it seems, though, too, like... Cliff one- could have gone down a, a, a path of, you know, having them play di- way different stuff. But that's what I mean. Like, if you look at Cliff, because okay, you know, we we're, were, were all real metal in the 80s. Yep. Fans and musicians. But as the band gets bigger, I mean, we're talking Cliff loved Waylon Jennings. He loved the Allman Brothers. He loved R.E.M. He loved classical. That stuff in the in the mid-90s, when you're talking about Mama Said and Ronnie and all that sort of stuff that's almost had that country's twinge, Cliff might have loved that. It's possible, but... Cliff was also about the essence of what the band was mm. and keeping that essence like we are Metallica this is what we do and even though he had the outside influences he, it was always about keeping that thing real and keeping it what it is just like ACDC sounds like ACDC on every record you know you have Got bands Slayer, like that yeah. Slayer I'm pretty sure that mm. they would not have taken the turns that they did if, if Cliff was in the band. We'll never know, obviously. Right. What was the the leadership aspect like with Cliff? Was it a three-headed monster of Lars James? No, nah, Cliff was definitely not a business guy. That was the one thing. He was definitely didn't care about the business, didn't want to be involved in the business. But musically and creatively, he, it was a three-headed monster at that point, I think, with Cliff there. Because he added, and he wasn't a fight, a guy who was going to fight and say, like, no, it's going to be my way. I mean, 
he he could play pretty pretty well between Lars and James in terms of like oh, I think this would and those guys respected him as well. So if he mm-hmm. had an idea or said oh what if we tried this, they would do it because of the respect factor because they they loved him as a bass player and, and the creative energy that he brought to it as well. But business wise, he was not a business guy, so I don't know that that would have. Did you ever hear the rumor that uh, James and Cliff were thinking about getting rid of Lars uh, on that tour? That, that well. That- yeah, this is uh, well. This is the famous thing in Scott Ian's book, right? That, that Dave we, said, or Scott said, yeah. or somebody said. Well, here's said. the thing about that. I I, I find that absolutely hysterical because <laughs> if you know the dynamic within that band, you know James and Lars are two very very different people, and they never really like when I would go hang out with those guys. For example, I I spent four days with them in Denver in 1991 on the Black. Black album tour, and it, you'd either I'd either go hang out with James one night or I'd go hang out with Lars one night, but rarely ever the two of them together. together. And, and you know they're they're brothers as as we know, but brothers fight and brothers have issues. And I can guarantee you that there were definitely times when the, when they're like, because Lars is you know as a as a he's got a lot of energy, mm-hmm. and you know he's he's got a lot of stuff going on, and you know he's the business guy. And I'm sure there were times when those guys just got tired of it, mm-hmm. but they were never going to kick him out. I, th- I think those things are kind of funny. I mean, yeah, I, I think you know there might have been a minute or two where it's like, oh, geez, this guy's getting on our nerves, or whatever's going on in in their world. They might have said something like that, but they would have. I mean, they've been together this long, well, especially when you know that you just mentioned earlier when Lars wants something done. I mean, he's the guy that was sending out you know Metallica press packs to every you know Art Shock magazine to get some kind of, or calling you to get a place on the album, and he and he. He's the business guy. Like That's if he's right. out, who's going to run the business right. yeah, aspect? Where of would it have gone? Yeah. One of the main, you know, one of the main reasons why they're so successful is he runs yeah. the business and knows what he's doing. Last couple of questions. First of all, do you have a favorite memory of Cliff? Oh boy, there's so many of them. I think honestly, you know, just I remember one time sitting on the bus, and I can't remember which tour it was, but obviously it was on a bus, so it was, had to have been <laughs> yeah. down the road, and it was just uh, after showing everybody kind of dispersed out it was just me and him on the bus and we talked for like two or three hours just talked about life and just a ton of different stuff and it was that was really the, mo- the most fun part just sitting and hanging with him because he just such, was such a great guy cool so down to, to earth to. and yeah they were starting I think this might have been it might have been on the Aussie run when they were doing that with, uh, with the one that you missed unfortunately mm-hmm, yeah. might have been on that but I just remember talking to him for like two or three hours and it was that was, that was a lot of fun your fa- favorite performance of his on a, on a record Oh, on a record. Well, see, my favorite Metallica record still is Ride the Lightning. So I think I would have to say probably Ride the Lightning. And, and live, you know, I saw them play so many times, but uh, I saw them play one of the festivals over in Europe in, um, I guess it must have been, was it have to have been 85, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, and they played, uh, I'm trying to remember where exactly, it wasn't in England, it was one of the other festivals. Uh, it might have been in, I, it might have been the Hunt Holland, but he was just, for whatever reason that day, I was, I was, I actually ended up, on his side, of, I'm always in the crowd. I, I never like to be on the stage. Yeah. So I just in the crowd. I ended up being over on his side of the stage for the most part. And this was when they weren't moving around. Mm-hmm. So I was just right in front of him. So I just kind of, for the first time in a long time, just kind of watched him the whole set. Man, just, there's dude, certain incredible. guys you don't realize how good they are until you see them play live. Oh yeah. You know, and he's one of them. Even just watching videos and stuff, just he's always moving. The foot pedals are on and off, and that sort of thing. You know? And he's very subtle because you know he let he let James be the front guy. Yeah. 
but but he was doing some amazing things. If you just watched, if you just took a time just to watch him for the most part, yeah. it's like, holy cow, this guy is just incredible. One final cliff story that Charlie told me, and I'm, you might have heard, you might not have, but for, for everyone listening. So there's a part in Master of Puppets right before the solo where Hetfield says something. Where's the dreams? Laughter, laughter. All I see in here is laughter, 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 laughter my cries. And the solo starts. So Charlie could never figure out what it was. And he said to Cliff, what is he saying before the solo? And Cliff told him, oh, he says, pancakes. <laughs> so every time they would watch the show from the side of the stage, Cliff would look at him and go, pancakes. <laughs> and now James knows that. And every time they play the big four when they were doing those, James would always look at Charlie and yell, pancakes. I believe it's fix me. But yeah. pancakes was It's the not one. pancakes. Yeah, I know that. It, but, yeah, but it is pancakes to Cliff. So. That sounds like something you'd say. He also had a great sense of humor about as well. <laughs> From that, yeah. yeah. Uh, a great, great performer, one of the greatest of all time. And much like... You know, uh, Bon Scott passing away and Cliff passing away and the Rev passing away. The bands went on to become even bigger without that guy. But we always wished and, 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 and you know, wonder what would have happened if they would have stayed. So. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, Cliff Burton, man. One of the best of all time. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. All right, the darkness are back with a vengeance. And here to be vengeful with me, I got Justin Hawkins, man. How's it going? Good, Chris. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, man. It's funny. I was actually doing some preparation for the first time probably ever in my life, and I read yeah. your press release, which you wrote, and it's uh, yeah. it, it's it's a exercise in creative uh, humor. It's amazing. Awesome. I'm glad you appreciate it. Thanks. Sometimes I feel like it's uh, you know when when you do an album, you have to. You have to have an accompanying blurb. I don't know why, but you need to <laughs> you, need you need to do journalists' jobs for them to a degree. So it seems mad to hire another journalist to do a third journalist job when you can just say it yourself. Well, and that's sort of the whole vibe of the darkness too. Is you've always had the, the the sense of humor behind you for all this great music that you make. Yeah, I think it's um, to be honest. Um, some of the things that we take really seriously are the things that people accuse us of being silly with, and vice versa. Hmm. You know, it's sort of, a, and I and I find it really startling when uh, when I sort of listen to other people's criticisms of us. I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, we were at the, an award ceremony, and um, Marilyn Manson was there also. Mm-hmm. And previously, like many years ago, Marilyn Manson had said some really nice things about the darkness. So he said something about how great we were or something mm-hmm. um but i think there was a sort of uk journalist that was really sort of probing him and prompting him to you know asking him leading questions about us to try and get him to say that we were rubbish mm-hmm. and uh he said uh, he said something oh, he was quoted as saying oh bands like the darkness um made fun of judas priest um and then people subsequently laughed at judas priest and uh which is complete nonsense, you know. Mm. Sort of, what we do is celebrating, celebrating that stuff, and and actually using vaguely modern influences to sort of try and push it in a 
slightly different direction. I mean, I think the reason why some people think we're making fun of it is because we we don't do it exactly the way it used to be done. You know, we actually try and modernise it slightly. And the things that we celebrate are the more ridiculous uh, elements of it that make you want to aspire to be a rock star in the first place, not the not the boring stuff, which everyone else seems to think is the important bit. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's, you know what I mean? I don't understand how, how he would say that you're making fun of Judas Priest when, like you said, if you're looking at what, let's say, a band like Priest was about, it was about costuming and the big stage and, 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 and kind yeah. of the... And that's what you guys started doing in 2003 when you first we first arrived, which nobody was yeah. doing at the time. So I think people maybe yeah. thought at first you were taking the piss because it was so different from anything that we've seen in the previous 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, people in glass houses... You know, I mean, all that fake blood and gut <laughs> pantomime stuff. I mean, how, who takes that seriously? I mean, that's got to be a joke, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of... Well, absolutely. The and, Emperor's... I mean, it's like the Emperor's new clothes, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But what, what was the reaction, though, when you first came out, let's say, like, wearing a cat suit, which we hadn't seen yeah. since maybe Freddie Mercury in, like, 79 or Steven Tyler or something like that? Did people yeah. think at first that it was kind of some kind of a parody or something along those lines? Uh... Well, to be honest, um, the first time I did the cat suit, I unveiled it in like a really small pub show in, in East London, really quite a rough part of East London. And um, I think there was sort of trepidation within the band as to how that was going to go down. You know, mm -hmm. a room full of 15 neo-Nazi right-wingers. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> me prancing in basically some see-through lycra, you know. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we weren't sure how it was going to go, really, but... Um, you know, I think it was. Uh, I think it made them reassess their political leanings almost. And <laughs> I could feel a. I could feel that I had the power to change people who needed to change. You know, mm -hmm. and, uh, I don't know. I felt like it was. Uh, you know, after that that point, we were kind of uh, asking people to make us outfits. And one of the guys that was sort of creating things for me. Said, uh, oh, one day it'll be like, uh, everyone will be going, oh, what's he going to wear this time? Mm. And for a minute there, it really was like that. You know, it was actually as much about the clothes as it was the music for a second, which is probably another reason why not everybody took it seriously. You know? Mm hmm. Well, and, and combine that with like your crazy falsetto, like such a high voice, which once again, you're thinking about, you know, you mentioned Priest earlier, you're thinking about 80s rock and roll, especially. That guy's got the best scream in rock. Totally. We saw him playing in um, uh, Sweden, Sweden Rock Festival a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and he doesn't use it. He doesn't use it as much as I use mine. But when he does, it's just mind blowing. Well, he, I believe he's still got that. You know, it's great. Well, yeah, and he's great also inspiring. in his early sixties or so. So you know, the fact that he can still pull out those notes when he has to is very amazing. Yeah. You know, to think about it that way. Great. It's totally awesome. Great classic songs, really great iconic look, and the voice is still preserved. Amber, it's just beautiful. Now, is this something for you as a vocalist? You know, you have such a, a high range, and the melody lines are very high in the darkness songs. Is that something that ever concerns you to think, you know, five, ten years from now, if you'll still be able to hit all those notes? Well, I think 10 years ago, I, I didn't care. <laughs> right. And I can still do it now. So it's kind of like, um, I realize that there'll come a time when it sort of becomes more difficult. But, you know, I think that'll probably be, if I come down with some kind of serious illness, I think that, otherwise it's manageable. I mean, it's just natural. It's not like I'm 
doing anything sort of uh, unholy to achieve that. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, it's actually pretty comfortable at the moment, so I think I'll be all right. When you guys were first putting together the whole concept of the darkness, like we mentioned, it was you know the cat suits and the high vocals, and, and even you know your first single, uh, I believe in a thing called Love, had like four guitar solos in it. And this is once again in a time when there was none. Was this what you were yeah. thinking of doing? Like we want to just completely change what's going on right now and do something totally different to to what's happening? Well, you know, by the time that single came out, um, I was twenty eight. Mm-hmm. So I already felt like I was past it, <laughs> you know, mm. in terms of uh, past my prime. And there's a lot of people coming through who are 19 or 20, considered the future of rock. And um, I was sort of resigned to just doing, you know, advertising jingles or some, some other kind of uh, existence in the music trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so we kind of decided to just do what we enjoyed doing. Um and uh, ignore what was fashionable. It wasn't with a view to changing everything. It was more just frustration, and we just didn't want to. We didn't want to play anymore. You know, we didn't want to um, be part of the scene or try and break through. I mean, back in those days, it's kind of like the the main um, the main motivation or the main ambition was to be signed to a record label. Right. And obviously, obviously that's changed now. Yeah. That doesn't mean the same thing. Um, but in the, you know, we're talking about 2000, end of the 90s, 2000, everybody wanted to be able to say to their girlfriend, yes, I just signed a record deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm a professional musician, as of today. It's official Everything's now. Everything's changed. <laughs> you know, and everybody, well, no, everybody who's actually been in that situation realizes that that doesn't mean you've made it, it just means that the work has just started, you know. But um, that was the ambition. Everybody was just trying to jump through the hoops and be the next Radiohead or whatever it, whatever it needed, you know, whatever it took to be mm-hmm. the next big thing, you know. Um, and we, the darkness happened because we all gave up <laughs> trying to fit in, you know. <laughs> Ironically, that was the thing that, you know, just doing that made us into something viable. But is, isn't that always the way, though, to really make it, especially in show business or music, you have to do something that's completely different from everything else? Yeah, or maybe it's that you have to hit rock bottom in order to bounce back or splat on the rocks. You know, <laughs> break yourself up over time and try again. So, so you God been... knows how many bands we've all been in, you know, interchanging personnel. There really used to be a scene in, in London. Everybody moved to London thinking, oh, yeah. It's that, it's that old sort of fable about the streets being paved with gold. Uh-huh. And um, it's just brutal. It really is. So many broken hearts and dreams and stuff. It's just really is an awful business. And, uh, you know, you never know who's going to make it. Nobody saw us coming. That's, that's, a, that's the truth, you know. Did you put together the darkness or did, were, were you gigging with the darkness for a few years or was it kind of just like a last-ditch effort, like, screw this, we're just going to do things that we want to do and whatever happens, happens? Yeah, it was the second one of those two things. <laughs> I mean, we, we played for, I don't know, we were together for about three years before before we started calling ourselves the darkness, but I wasn't singing. I was actually um playing keyboards and additional guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we decided to call it the darkness on the day that I became the singer. Um and to be honest, we're toying with the idea of changing the name of the band. Which might be a slightly controversial maneuver at this point. Of changing like... change the name of the band now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
But I don't know. We might have to run a competition on Facebook to name the band. Or and and like why that. and why is that, Justin? <laughs> why are you thinking about changing? I don't know. It? It's just it's something that came up. We thought about doing it for this album because it does feel like it's a new, what you might call a return to form. But there's something different about it now. I mean, maybe it's because. Uh, I know we've had a couple of personnel changes in the last year, and it just feels totally different. It feels like it's rejuvenated, and um, I mean, it obviously, it would be career suicide to <laughs> throw away everything that we've built up over the years. I mean, but there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to. I don't know. Depends. Let's see. I mean, if we end up sort of swamped in debt as a darkness, then that would be an ideal time to change the name because it would. You know, please us artistically. It wouldn't be suicide. I mean, if in the event of staying together, proving to be financial suicide, then it makes sense. Do you just feel that the name "The Darkness" doesn't represent your your music as 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 well? <laughs> well, it never did. I think maybe it's representing <laughs> it a little bit too much. You know, right. there's too much of a sense of expectation when you hear the darkness, and everybody's got an idea of what it is, but nobody really knows apart from us. So maybe it's time to change it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Would you have any uh, ideas of what you might change it to? Um, well, <laughs> probably got about 2,000 ideas, 1,999 of which are utterly rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I really think it's time to open it out, make it... I mean, pretty much everything is kind of... Um, every idea you have is crowdsourced or crowd-approved. You know, you need to be addressing what your fans want because at the end of the day that's the uh, that's all you got you know right we're not on the radio everywhere in the world you know of course in malaysia we're massive but we don't spend a lot of time in that, that part of the world <laughs> and, uh, isn't that always the <laughs> way like the most random <laughs> of countries you know, what we're trying to harvest here is is like our fan base to have a sense of ownership over what we're doing and if they name the band that's even better isn't it it's like when you go and adopt a homeless puppy you know the first thing you do is you give it a name <laughs> That's what so, we are. We're, we're like the musical equivalent of a homeless puppy. You're the homeless puppies of rock. <laughs> Definitely. Maybe, maybe that we're could the be... homeless puppies sort of longingly staring at prospective new owners from the kennel of rock. Maybe that could be the 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 new name, the homeless puppies. I love it. In the kennel of rock. I don't want to be a the band. Can we just call it homeless puppies? Even better, homeless puppies. And yeah. you, you, could, you do realize that puppies is a euphemism for the, for the lady breast. Well, for bosoms, right. So, yeah, so maybe that's too misogynist. You know, we're trying to move away from that area. Yeah, you, or you could just eliminate the middle man and just be the homeless bosoms. Brilliant. That's even better. <laughs> homeless bosoms. <laughs> I mean, it would be the same idea as what Prince did, you know, 15 years ago when he changed his name just to a symbol. Yeah. You know, but we would end up being the the artist formerly known as the Darkness. <laughs> the, uh, T T A F K T D. It's a bit of a mouthful. It is. I'll live with you. Might not fit on the marquee <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, we, we're playing smaller venues these days, and we need to get that printed on a backdrop somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Play big enough places where you can fit that on the backdrop. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You mentioned being uh, the last of our kind being a return to form, and I, I agree with you on that because there was such a, a long break between One Way Ticket uh, um, and um, and Hot Cakes, and, and Hot Cakes was was kind of a different vibe from what from what Last of Our Kind is. Yeah, it's funny. We've had a lot of um, reviews. I mean, obviously, I'm not supposed to read reviews. I used to pride myself on not caring, mm -hmm. but um, I'm super proud of the new album. So I kind of 
I, find, I allow myself to read some out of curiosity now. Mm-hmm. And um, I got, a lot of them are saying that the last album was a little bit underwhelming. There's, I'll give you an example. Metal Hammer said, uh, oh, this, this album's a startling return to form. Eight out of ten. The last one was a little bit soppy. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't quite what... And then, so, we went, oh, OK, let's have a look at the Metal Hammer review for that one. And it says, nine out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> There's no consistency. Well, what are the rules, you know? Well, yes. How does it work? If, it's, if an album's better, then give it a higher mark. Ten out of ten, surely, by implication. That's what they meant. So, in fact, when, what we've created is the perfect album. Which is the ideal time to change the name of the band, I think. We're never going to get away with it. It's now. It still blows my mind that you're you're considering that. Like it's just such a, a, a revolutionary thing to do. It's it's so random, you know. Well, I used to have this idea with, with my my other band I did in Between the Darkness. I was thinking it'd be really brilliant to just have the same album title every time, but then just change the name of the band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And we've been like um, Hot Leg, the Platinum Collection, and then the next year you do another album, and it's. Um, and the Bonjour, the Platinum Collection. <laughs> yeah. of platinum. It's a lot easier for the collection society to gather your royalties, I think. <laughs> right. They know what songs they're looking for, you know. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that all the songs would be the same, but I mean, just the album title. Yeah, just change the name. Well, once again, you want to do something no one's ever done before, that would definitely be it. Just change your band name every album. Yeah, wouldn't it be great? Yeah, because, you know, like you said, right, everybody has the same name but changes the title of the record. You're just flip-flopping it and changing the band and just keeping the same title of the record. I mean, everything else in the music industry has been turned upside down. I don't see why this is sacred. Well, and and you kind of came in, you know, we mentioned The Darkness in 2003. That was kind of the end of the record-selling days, you know, in comparison yeah. to where we are now, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think of, the, of how things have changed in, in, in the business since since when you started? I mean, I think I feel like it's always, you know, the music trade has always sort of traditionally had um, this sort of atmosphere around it, where it's kind of like a clique that you really need to break into, and only the very select, chosen few mm-hmm. make it, and nobody really understands why those are the ones that break through. You know, there's a million million people in the world who are more talented than I am, but they're not in the position that I am, and would actually give their right arm to be in the position that I am. And um, nobody understands what it is. Um, so I think in that sense, the business is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's never going to change, I don't think. It's just the nature of it. Because I think there's certain things about um, unquantifiable, unmeasurable um, things like charisma and stuff that really sort of dictate how much the populace mm-hmm. invests in a in a character or in a an artist, you know. Right. And it's in that to that extent it's completely irrelevant how good you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think Tom uh, who was it now? Todd Rundgren had a brilliant take on it and I, I watched some of his seminars that he does at these um music trade uh, things. Mm-hmm. He said um he said uh, that in the olden days, music used to be a service that was provided by sort of travelling mu- minstrels or medieval musicians or whatever. Um, and then, with the advent of the, you know, musical recording, it became a product which you then sold. Mm-hmm. And all that's happened is that because nobody buys records anymore, they only listen to music. Music has gone back to being a service. 
so all of us musicians are just floundering about coming to terms with the fact that we've regressed to a medieval state (laughs) where we're little more than minstrels (laughs) homing with our lutes and uh, hurdy-gurdies just trying to make ends meet. Um, The the thing is that the shadowy overlords of the music trade who, you know, used to be the record companies are still the record companies, (laughs) which is astonishing, really. I mean, for minimal investment, they're still... What, and up, and, and trying to figure out exactly what it is that they do at this stage well, I mean, of the game. No, I mean, the reason why it's something like the 360 deal, where, you know, the record company gets um, your records, mm-hmm. they get your publishing, they get your merchandise, um, they get any other, anything else that, they can, that you can make money from as an artist, they will take a cut of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason why that is is because they want to. It's not because they have any expertise in those areas, because they basically yeah. don't. They would be outsourcing that. Um, but I feel like it's kind of like um, nobody knows where the money is, so they're just sort of chasing it like wolves, really. Um, and instead of trying to create a format, for example, where the, the experience of listening to music is so beautifully enhanced, it can't be compressed into an MP3, you know, mm-hmm. and it's completely immersive and, and groundbreaking. Instead of investing in that, I think they're just trying to find new ways to take money from artists, and that hasn't changed. You know, that's that's the one that's the one consistent part of the music industry. I think. Yeah, that's. Not that I'm complaining. I mean, that's actually, it's awesome. I mean, I, I actually think that that's um, part of the existence, and it's part of the reason why it's so magical and, and something that people aspire to. Is because it's such an achievement to make any money out of. But uh, it's almost like an audacious thing to try and achieve. <laughs> Maybe it's been around for hundreds of years, isn't it? Yeah, to have a profitable tour, if you can do that, it's almost like you, you know, you've you've accomplished something incredible at this point. Yeah, you know, definitely. I mean, you're in a minority if you're making a, any sort of profit. They <laughs> <laughs> told- talk about the long tail. You know about the long tail thing? No, what's that? Have you ever heard of that expression? No. Well, <clears throat> what they used to say was before the internet. And there was a long tail, um, how do you put it? Like, you've got a graph and the vertical measurements were, you know, the amount of money made. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, along the other axis, you have bands, you know, so you've got millions and millions and millions of bands. And what used to happen was it was a very steep curve where there were like one or two bands that were making all the money. And then millions of bands that weren't making any money because of the, the way the music was arranged. Right. So the theory was that when the internet came along and all these other smaller bands who weren't making any money were, were, had the potential to find an audience without having to leave their bedrooms, the idea was that there'd be more bands at the top end of it making money and then it'd be a slightly less steep curve. So, you know, the tail would be longer and there'd be more people making money. But what I didn't anticipate is what actually happened where it became even worse, where there's actually two bands making all the money and then millions of bands are making all money whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's, it's it didn't like a, anything. It actually just made it a whole lot worse. You know? It's like a tadpole and the two bands are the head and the rest of the bands that yeah. are making money is the long tail. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, exactly. It's a beautiful way to put it. You um nature to illustrate your point. <laughs> See, there you go. We're learning something today on 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 the show. Yeah. It's very good. Much like I have to throw this in there when uh, I can't remember what song it was. Oh, is is it me? Where you said uh, John O'Groats, and oh, yeah. I actually had to look that up 
using yeah. the uh, interweb Google uh, machine and found out what John O'Groats was. So you taught me what John O'Groats is, Justin. Okay, well, I mean, the thing is, John O'Groats and Land's End in that song, uh, those are the two sort of, especially like the two diametrically opposed points of the of the uh, British Isles, you know. Um, John O'Groats is right at the top, Land's End right down the bottom. Very yeah, John O'Groats is the furthest north you can get, and Land's End is the furthest south. Yeah, and um, it's quite a traditional uh, walking route if you want to raise some money for sick children. Oh. It's still a sponsored walk between John O'Groats and Land's End. I think that's what Ian Botham did, actually, in the 80s. That's why I know about it, because of Beefy Botham, well, the, just, uh, the famous cricketer. Just the he fact taught you... me about geography. <laughs> See? And then you passed it on to me. In the chat. <laughs> so look, when, if you have any, if you have a moment in the public eye, it's your duty. <laughs> sure is. And now I <laughs> shall pass it on to somebody else. I'm, I'm, we're passing it along today. Now people know, listening to this show, what John O'Groats is. If they're still awake. <laughs> you mentioned uh, reading reviews and that sort of thing. How do you feel when you get a bad review? Do you, do, I mean, we like to say as artists that we don't care, but deep down inside, yeah. it still pisses you off. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you know what it's like. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's hard to explain it, really. Mm-hmm. The level of anger. <laughs> I mean, it's a blind fury. You know, it's just like, it's so, it's so, um, because the first thing you think is, well, who looks up to you? You know, right. and you think like, uh, how dare you compromise, you know, the potential by telling people that something's shit when you obviously haven't listened to it properly. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, and then it gets worse, and then it's you know, after the blind fury, you're actually sort of plotting this person's demise. You've never met them before, so it's only an opinion, but um, so unwelcome. It's like, but whereas <laughs> you get a good review, it's like, oh, this is great writing. This guy's obviously super intelligent. <laughs> yeah, of course. There's nothing but respect for this writer. <laughs> really, we should invite him to something. <laughs> yeah. Get him over. Send him some merch. Sitting <laughs> <laughs> off the bottom shelf. That's lovely. Have you ever gotten any reviews that you remember, just like really bad ones? Do you, do you remember like some of the quotes? Uh, well, uh, I think now. We played a festival. Bad um, ones. I mean, the thing is, that you, you, I mean, it, it does become such a blur. I mean, it's, it really is kind of. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, that, that is part of. I mean. The one reason why I don't didn't look at reviews was because I wanted to be able to say to people, oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, yeah, don't, exactly. read that. I don't read that shit. Um, but the real reason why I don't read that stuff is because it makes me so fucking angry. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I get more angry about, sometimes I get more angry about good reviews or even interviews, you know, where, where if I've been misquoted, that used to be something that really used to send me into a fit of peak. I would be, I'd be like, that's not what I've said. Right. I'm an intelligent person. <laughs> that's, that's how deluded I am. I mean, it's been like, well, it, it's also I hard. I can't read anything at all. I just, it's, better, it's better for me to just pretend I'm not in a band most of the time. It's the safest way. It's harder and harder, too, though, with you know, social media and you know, websites and that sort of thing. It's really hard. You know, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, people are giving you yeah. their instant feedback on anything. You know, it's like Barbarian yeah. comes out first single. You're going to hear about it right away, what people think about I it. I think that's... That is great. I mean, obviously, that's it's brilliant to have a forum that people can talk to each other. But for sake, don't talk to me about it. You know what I mean? Twitter is a one-way thing. It should be outwards, not never inwards. Oh my God, that's awful. It's like opening opening your front door and then just having a little sleep with the door open.
that. <laughs> Keep away. It's my property, you know. My mind. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I, I, obviously, people are entitled to their opinions, but uh, very often I'll get somebody who's tweeting at me and, and sort of saying, oh, I like this, and I think it's really wonderful you've done that. Um, is there any chance you could uh, maybe do some more like that? Because it's just great, and then I'll just hit block. <laughs> <laughs> Silence. <laughs> <laughs> Any type of yeah. <laughs> I mean, in an ideal world, we'd just be making music and then we'd just push it through. You know, it'd be on a very flat format, like perhaps vinyl. And I could push it out underneath the door of my, uh, you know, nuclear bunker, and I'll just stay in there for the rest of the time. Nobody needs to see or hear from me. Right, no one needs um, to know. When you, <laughs> I'll just send a hologram to do the shows. Even better. And, uh, that'd be perfect. Remember when Ozzy used to have somebody singing for him off stage behind a curtain? You just put well, the hologram on. Sure that was a simple rumor, was it not? Yeah, apparently there was somebody back there doing some background vocals or something. Maybe if that's the rumor or whatever. Oh my God. But you I could, have heard that rumor, actually. You could do that. Just put the hologram up, and then you just sit behind backstage in, in an yeah. easy chair and sing the set. You don't even have to put your clothes on. You, put, you don't have to put your stage clothes on. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and then, as I'm sure you realize, it's, when you're seated, you sing a lot better. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so you could comfort that, that could cause uh, you know voice problems. It's perfect. Yeah, you don't have to ride on the, the you know the, across the. What were you riding across the a white tiger across the audience the, a couple tours ago? Yeah, I've done some white tiger work. I've also done some basic trapeze stuff, and I've had two sort of pivots on my hips so you can do somersaults and play electric guitar. <laughs> at the same time. Well, I mean, you definitely are, are a great front man and, and very, very vibrant and very outrageous, which is why I wanted to ask you about this last tour on the Hot Cakes tour. You actually went out with Lady Gaga. Oh, uh, yeah. Which a lot of people funny, were think... kind of saying, I don't get it, but I totally get it. I mean, it fits perfectly, her vibe and your vibe, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think the timing of it was, was something that a lot of people didn't understand because it was, um, you know, the Hot Cakes album came out and then the first thing we did was we went on tour with Lady Gaga. I think ideally we would have done some of our, our own shows. Mm -hmm. But um, when, like, the biggest tour comes along and invites you on it, then for me, I, I don't think it's something you can actually turn down. You know, we, we're actually playing, um, playing to full stadiums in uh, South America and we'd never been to South America before because nobody ever sort of uh, gave us the opportunity to do that mm -hmm. and when we sort of broke through you know you go where the records are selling and I think there's such high saturation of um, uh, piracy down there Right. And they never used to send us there back in the day so we've always wanted to go and then this gave us the opportunity to sort of make some inroads in what, what we consider to be one of our most important territories you know so um, it was great. I mean, just on that level, going to places that we hadn't been before was awesome. Um, I think there were some, there was some, uh, how do you, how do you say, correlation between her approach to a show and ours. I mean, obviously hers is, you know, benefited from hundreds of millions of pounds worth of investment, mm -hmm. um, whereas ours is just four blokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I think it was great. I mean, it, I really, really enjoyed it, and um, the experience was uh, um, just uh, really, really um, exciting for me, I thought. How, how did that come to, to fruition? Um, just that I got a phone call just out of the blue. Um, you know, from, from our U.S. manager who said, you know, there's this. And I was like, well, brilliant, let's do that. <laughs> you know, we were actually looking for... Um, a support to a 
Um, but we sort of anticipated it might end up being someone like Aerosmith or, or Lenny, Lenny Kravitz or someone like that mm-hmm. who was doing, you know, big arenas at the time. And um, we were hoping to get on something like that. But then Lady Gaga was obviously, um, that was the thing that was selling the most tickets and had the biggest buzzy thing. So we decided to go for that. And, well, and I mean, did she give you the opportunity to do kind of your full show or did you get to use any of your effects or anything like that? Um, no, um, but um, she gave us a reasonable time slot, though, you know, like a 45-minute Which is great, set, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, that's, there was no need for her to do that, but she, she did, so that, we're really grateful for that. Um, I think bringing our show to that thing would have been a little bit inappropriate, maybe a bit presumptuous. I think we're, you know, there's a certain etiquette to being a support band. You try and keep out everyone's way, you know. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be setting fire to stuff and flying above <laughs> them. Right. Keep <laughs> <laughs> yourself. yourself. <laughs> how how, how did how did you go over in front of her fans? Uh, it depends where we were. Actually, South America was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, Parts of Scandinavia was just mind blowing. France was uh, truly one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. We played at the Stade de France, which is obviously a football stadium, mm-hmm. and uh, it just felt like a a darkness show. I mean, I know, obviously that's a awful thing to say, awfully ungrateful thing for a support man to say, but. We had a great time. Um, but then, you know, there were some times when uh, it was stony-faced. Uh, <laughs> and little, they call them little monsters. who uh-huh. were just sort of like staring at us like we were from a different planet, a, a planet which uh, is inhabited by, I don't know, um, animate um, dog shit men <laughs> who were just repulsive to look at. And, I don't know, it just didn't work in some places. But um, I think overall, like 75% of it was brilliant. I think that was the quote of the, uh, of the, of the talk so far. Animate dog <laughs> shit men. <laughs> yeah. Maybe... maybe sh- quite, I mean, there's a film in there somewhere. We might have to change the name of it. But. There might be. You can throw that in the hat for the new name of the darkness as well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's the animate dog shit men. <laughs> How is it um, being in a band w- with your brother? I mean, over the years, we've seen from from Ray Davies and Dave Davies to the Robinson brothers to the Gallagher brothers fighting and arguing and screaming. Has it ever come to that with you guys? Um, it seems like you guys are getting along pretty good at this point in time. Yeah, we, we are having a good time with the brothers element. Um, I think it's just maturity, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I think these, all these bands get together, get back together eventually, no matter what they've been through. Um, because of the brothers thing. It's one of those relationships where... Have you got brothers? Uh, no, I don't. I'm a, I'm a dreaded only child. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, when you have a brother or sister, it's one of those relationships where you're, you're, you've got a peer who you can basically treat like shit and always know that they're coming back, you know. <laughs> right. a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like a marriage, but without the possibility of divorce. So no matter what you do, this person will always be your sibling. So I think... <laughs> In, when you're working with somebody like that, it can actually be really damaging. You can end up sort of really upsetting each other. And it can take years to repair, but it always does. That's mm-hmm. the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Eventually you realize how, how to sort of nurture it in a more productive way, but it does take time and it takes maturity. Um, and you've got to not just basically not take each other for granted. So I suppose it's like any other relationship, only uh, a little bit more indestructible, maybe. Did you guys used to jam together when you were kids? Um, on and off, yeah. I think mainly because uh, we come from a small town, so there wasn't that much of a music scene. So if there was a band happening, most of the time we were both in it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, 
our tastes are very different. Um, and obviously there's the brothers, <laughs> the brothers thing. So sometimes we didn't, sometimes we didn't, depending on uh, who said the most upsetting thing. Most. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> now, you mentioned before, I mean, obviously, you know, the Hawkins brothers have been the cornerstones of the darkness, but you've had, you know, Frankie's been in, Frankie's been out, and then Ed is gone, and then you had Emily come in, and now you have... Uh, Rufus Taylor playing with you on drums, who is, you know, obviously Roger Taylor's son. Now, I'm assuming you're a huge Queen fan just by your vocal stylings and some of your stuff that you do as a frontman. Uh, would I be correct in that assumption? Yeah, um, my left hand has the original members of Queen uh, tattooed on each finger. Starts off with um, Brian. Freddie's on the middle finger, of course. <laughs> the ring finger is uh, actually Rufus's father which is a little bit awkward when he first walked in. Um, and then John Deacon's on the pinky. I thought I'd put him on the small thing because I know that he doesn't like the public eye so much. I very seldom use that one when I'm playing guitar, so it's away there. Um, yeah, I'm a massive, massive Queen fan. I think, it, to be honest, it's, um, I don't really understand people who aren't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think through that you know, passion for Queen, we, and that's obviously been acknowledged by the Queen people. And we actually became really good friends with Brian May. Um, and I've even I've even shared a, um, an evening of debauchery with uh, Roger Taylor. I was very lucky to do that years ago. And um, I feel like uh, I feel like uh, that's actually how the, the opportunity to work with uh, Rufus came about um, because one of their people spoke to one of their people, and uh, we made it happen. You know. Um, Right. I, I actually um, have supreme confidence that, that Rufus is going to be our drummer for many years to come now. He's awesome, and he's such a great person. Really, really fun to hang out with. Um, completely gets it, and he's more rock and roll than anybody else we've uh, met. So. It's it's in his genetics. you know. I saw Queen... Well, I think it, it's funny enough, I, I actually do believe that there's something in that. I think he's completely and equipped for this lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Knows exactly how to have a good time without without everything up. You know? <laughs> it's just brilliant. I saw him play last year with Queen. He actually plays some drums in in their set now. Right? Yeah, yeah, that was him. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, as, as luck would have it, um, our schedules permit him to do both things this year. So mm-hmm. there's no reason for him to have to turn anything down at the moment. He's just going to be he's just going to be busy for a while. What's the reaction in England? I mean, The Darkness is a very English band, as is Queen. And now, you know, Queen with, with Adam Lambert as the singer, who in America had a really good name value and actually does a hell of a job. You know, you can never replace Freddie, but as a singer and as uh, he has that vibe and that, you know, his, his sexuality is the same as Freddie. So how was, how was the vibe in England? When, I don't think anybody's sexuality is the same as Freddie. Well, <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's gay as Freddie is, so at least he can, he can pick up that vibe. Like Killer Queen, he embodies that, that same vibe. What, what is the thought process in England? Do you guys know who Adam Lambert is? Do you even give it a, a shot or is it like Freddie or nothing? Um, I think, well, I, I worked with Adam on his first album, actually. Oh, that's um, right. You did. You wrote a song with him. Yeah, the first yeah, the first song on the album is um, one that I wrote. I remember um, that. So I've actually, I don't know whether I'm a good person to ask you. I've been aware of Adam since the beginning, really. Um, there was a moment in the series when um, he performed with Queen, and it was quite obvious from the way Brian May was looking at him that he was going <laughs> to do that job at some point. I mean, everybody saw it coming. Right. Everybody who was aware of that show saw it coming. Um, 
And I think he's the best man for the job. You know, he's definitely definitely got what it takes, hasn't he, in terms of vocal range to be able to pull off the more ambitious Queen tracks. And um, I think I think uh, Paul Rogers was. Um, I mean, I think he's one of the greatest singers ever, but he is limited to a certain type of rock and roll, so, which means that a lot of the Queen catalogue gets left behind when you use somebody like that. But that isn't the case with, with Adam Lambert. I mean, he's obviously got um, much more diversity in his performance style, I think, to, to be able to do all the really challenging arrangements. Well, um, that... I don't think it's got anything to do with his sexuality, I must add. I actually think it's more to do with his... <laughs> well, I, I agree with you on that, but I think that the sexuality adds to it. I mean, I think... Um, it, it, yeah, all right, maybe maybe from a sort of PR perspective, it's um, a good way to sort of address the, the usual sort of American concerns that people have about sexuality. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it's always, it's been a, it was a long time before actors became openly gay in America, I think. That's true, that's, yeah. That's the perspective, that's the sort of perception that you get from English people. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in, in England, of course, we, we have people like Elton John who are openly gay, and not not only that, they are knighted, they're knights of the realm. The Queen has sure. laid a sword on his shoulder and, and made him one one of hers, and, and I think that's a, a vastly different attitude, you know. Um, so yeah, the sexuality thing isn't something that. English people ever I think just from a sh- from a show business standpoint is what I was saying though he has that flamboyancy yeah. that you would have from 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 being you know being gay as Freddie was I, I I don't think it's it's I don't think it's like you know if you're taking the top 100 reasons why Adam is a great singer and queen it's maybe you know number 100 but I think there's a little element to it where he can really feel some of those vibes that's just the way I kind of saw yeah it, you I know well, maybe. well I think he's um you know, if he's ready to embrace that side of it, that's really cool. But I do think that Freddie was, um, you know, he's one of those people that subverted um, macho culture in, in the way he was wearing. Like, he was probably one of the first, mm. a pioneer of that, really. Sure. With all that leather stuff and, you know, wearing the Marlon Brando hat. And I don't think anybody ever made that association with gayness until later, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of the fun, really. So, I mean, it's hard to find areas where you're actually challenging in the same way nowadays mm-hmm. it's probably part of the you know part of the reluctance to accept adam as a, as a queen singer but they, they never actually bill it as queen they always bill it as queen with adam lambert yeah queen plus adam lambert okay. exactly did, yeah. you, did you ever i did... think they're quite smart about what they're doing and, and you know they're, they're definitely using the right guy and they're not cheapening the catalog by actually getting out there and playing i mean god i mean who, who would begrudge them the opportunity to go and play those songs oh at this point in their lives. I mean, it'd be sad if, you, if they weren't allowed to, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, those songs would never would never live again, you know, yeah. at least played by the original guys, you know. Do you know well, that... I did hear, did hear Kanye doing uh, um, Bohemian Rhapsody recently. Oh, no, he didn't. It, oh. Startling. <laughs> Door dropping. Diabolical. <laughs> Breathtaking. <laughs> Do you know that today is the uh, 30th anniversary of the of, of the Queen Live Aid performance, which has been is it really? yeah. Oh my God. I just read that when I was waiting for you to call, and I was like, ah, how apropos. Yeah. Today's today. Yeah, today, man. Yeah, the, v- voted the greatest well, gig I came of all out time. Of podcast retirement in, in honor of that. <laughs> just for that. That's the reason, right? That's yeah. why you booked it today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys have a, a huge tour coming up of the States uh, starting uh, October 9th in California. And how long has it been since you guys played in the States? Um, I think last time you came was uh, 
2013. Okay, so it's been... It last time, around about May or something, we did this... I think we actually played at a festival in New York called the, the Great Guga Muga Festival. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. <laughs> no, it was a food festival, okay. primarily, with, with music as an afterthought, mm-hmm. which is the kind of thing that we, you know, we love to do. The, the boutique festival, which is more about food than music. <laughs> Music's the afterthought. I know. Let's get the darkness. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was some really great falafel and, uh, yeah, and guitar solos. Um, but that was, yeah, around about May. So it's been the last couple of years. Okay. Doing a bit, yeah. So, I mean, do you, is, is, do you look forward to touring the States? Is there a different vibe here than there is in, in England? Are the venues similar yeah, sizes? Always forward to I mean, I think actually it does, it does vary from town to town. Um, I mean, obviously it's a huge place. It's more of a continent than a, mm-hmm. than a country, but... Um, it, which makes it, you know, challenging and hard hard work to get across, but it's totally worth it. Um, we've got some amazing fans in, in America, and we're looking forward to playing for them again. You know, will you have uh, some? Product- I, I particularly like I particularly like LA. I mean, that, that might be a controversial point of view, and I know it's sort of uh, a bit of a cliche, but I love walking around LA. I think it's great, um, and I can see myself living in Philadelphia. Got some great friends there. Love the, love Seattle. And all the bits in the middle. So, you know. It brought, for, you could actually walk down Hollywood Boulevard in your cat suit and no one would even give you a second glance. I've tried that and they do. They do. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they do. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not yeah. that. And somebody shouted, uh, hipster, uh, for a passing car. I didn't actually know what that meant at the time. I was quite flattered, but then I realized that it was, <laughs> it was intended to be an insult. <laughs> quite hurt. <laughs> well, the tour is coming up, and I want to ask you a final question. Actually, two twofold. What's your favorite Queen song, if you had to choose one? Um, oh, what a difficult question. It would be something off. Um, it would be something off um, "Sheer Heart Attack," the album. Mm-hmm. Um, probably um, in in the lap of the gods, as opposed to in the lap of the gods revisited. I think. Um, it's part of a. It's difficult to listen to it on its own because it segues into another song, but um, it's an amazing singing, uh, actually by Roger Taylor. Um, Who's a great yeah, singer. Yeah, In absolutely. the Lap of the Dog. Uh, God. God, dog. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be another one. I just discovered uh, the Prophet song. Like, I mean, I, I'd heard it, but you know, when you hear a song that you hadn't heard for yeah. a while and you rediscover it, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's amazing. It's yeah. like. It's such a great tune. That's the, that's Have you ever tried the uh, the delay vocal bit in the middle? Have you ever tried achieving that yourself? <sighs> Impossible. You know. I used to do it in sound check. I mean, it, it, it comes a point where you can't do you can't do the harmonies and stuff. But right, it's really satisfying to try and pull that off. Yeah, if you can do that, at least. I've done okay with Bohemian Rhapsody. Everyone should try it. It's great. Yeah, if you if you have that range, for sure, for sure. And a delay pedal. Yeah, you need that. Yeah. <laughs> Last question: What's your favorite Darkness song to to play live? At the moment, it's Barbarian from the new album. Great tune. It has because now I do I do two both the dramatic monologues in it, one in the beginning and one in the middle. Um, I get to scream that chorus and I get to play the guitar solo, and it's about Vikings. And uh, who doesn't love Vikings? Apart from the people who are being raped and pillaged by them. <laughs> but, I mean, Bes- there comes a time when you've got to forgive and forget. Really. Absolutely. Yeah, besides those those uh, sad sacks, Vikings are pretty damn cool. Yeah, great look, <laughs> iconic, seafaring people as well. You've got to respect that. I mean, of course, of course, they were naughty boys. But I mean, 
you know, got to break a few eggs if you want to make a Scandinavian omelette. <laughs> Uh, Justin, it's great talking to you, man. I appreciate you taking some time as you enjoy your uh, leisurely walk home in Switzerland from from the Thai food restaurant. And uh, yeah, when, when I was heavy breathing earlier, it wasn't because I was masturbating while we were speaking. Although you are, you know, um, it was because I was going up a hill, and it's very it's hilly. It's not because yeah, I'm yeah. not because of my my ruggedly handsome looks. It's because you're walking well, up yeah, a hill. It's, it's a bit of both, if I'm honest, okay. but I don't <laughs> right. need to think that I was exposing myself to the community. <laughs> All right, man. We look forward to seeing you in the States. And actually, uh, our band and your band is doing a festival together in December somewhere, Winter Rocks or something in Sheffield. So Amazing. I'll come oh, and fantastic. I'll come and say hi to you. Great stuff. Look forward to it. Thank you, my friend. Thanks a lot, mate. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks to Justin Hawkins of The Darkness. They're kicking off the Blast of Our Kind World Tour next Friday, October 9th in Pomona, California, just outside of Los Angeles. The Darkness put on a hell of a show. It's super entertaining. So much fun. Cat suits, uh, giant inflatable penises, uh, huge high screams, guitar solos. What more do you want, man? Actually, it's funny. Justin does a spot where he stands on his, uh, he does a handstand and claps with his feet. You know, like, clap, clap clap but he does it with his feet super funny you're going to find out all the tour dates and ticket information about the upcoming tour at the darkness.co.uk or on their facebook page which is the darkness official if you haven't seen the darkness you need to go and if you haven't picked up the darkness's new record last of our kind it harkens back to the uh permission to land a record very very cool i am really digging it i'm a big a darkness fan i have been for the last 10 12 years and last of our kind is a return to rock and roll form for the band you won't be disappointed you you can get it on Amazon, and if you do, please use them TIJ links. You know where to find them. Go to podcastone.com, click on the supporter show sponsors banner at the top of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I got them Amazon links for the USA, the UK, the Canada A. Every time you use the TIJ Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to the show to help us cover production costs. Now go ahead. Order yourself a killer rock record and support Talk is Jericho in the process. Both The Darkness and I thank you. Or go buy some Metal Blade records. Go buy King Diamond or Slayer. Buy Master of Puppets so you can listen to the greatness, the brilliance of Cliff Burton. Uh, thanks to Brian Slagle for telling us all about Cliff. And thanks to all of you for sending them great emails to uh, my email address, talkisjericho at gmail.com. Got another couple to share. Scott in Montreal wrote, How about getting the last piece of the original lineup of Kiss? You've had Ace. Paul twice, Gene, of course, Bruce Kulick, just missing Peter. Can we expect to hear that one? I, I would love to have the Catman on Talk is Jericho. I just got to track him down. I don't have any contacts for Peter Chris. Is anyone, everyone, anyone's listening out there that wants to help me out? Find me, Peter Chris. I need him. Uh, Scott continues. He's just finishing up his first six months at DDP Yoga. He's lost 25 pounds so far. Another 15 to go for the target. Keep rocking, Scott. You're going to make it. Joseph wrote in from Brisbane, Australia. I'm curious to know what the story is behind the controversial music music video for your song enemy from all that remains the video shows a wheelchair bound man struggle to get up a flight of stairs only to jump off the roof at the end when he gets there um yeah that was the director's idea and uh it was a little bit morbid and that video was banned from mtv it came out the same week as jay-z was in a video where he uh uh, got shot and there was like blood all over the place and blood pellets and bullets but our little uh, video was banned because a guy threw himself off the off the roof I guess because it was suicide I'm not really sure so um, yeah you can ask the director his name was Paul I forgot what his last name was but uh, 
you know, whatever. Cool video. I like it. I like the uh, the feel of it. Actually, the guy taking pictures is Fred Corey, the drummer for Cinderella, who I saw at ACDC in Los Angeles the other night. One more question from my email, talkisjericho at gmail.com, from Aaron Kersey in the UK. Love the show. My favorite episode has to be William Shatner. Intelligent, intellectual. Look forward to seeing you and Fozzie in Birmingham in December. Well, William, actually, a uh, little bit of a treat for you. He will be returning to Talk is Jericho very, very soon. And I will be returning uh, to uh, Madison Square Garden. October 3rd, the 25th anniversary of Y2J's wrestling career. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Jericho versus Owens for the Intercontinental Championship live on the WWE Network. 25th anniversary, the exact 25th anniversary. So come check out my 25th anniversary to the day. And come see me become possibly the 10th time Intercontinental Champion. I have nine Intercontinental Championship victories. This could be number 10. It's going to be a huge night, a great celebration with uh, Don Callis, Cyrus, Jackal, whatever you want to call him, the network guy from ECW. Lance T. Storm will be there. Dr. Luther is going to be there. It's going to be the 25th anniversary of Chris Jericho. Very, very fun. Then I head to Saudi Arabia, October 9th. Head over to Mexico, October 16th, October 30th. Rocking the Kiss Cruise with uh, the Kiss Navy. And, of course, Paul and Gene and the boys. Then the Cinderblock Party goes back to the U.K. and Europe with Nonpoint and Sumo Psycho uh, in tow. November 26th at the Islington Academy in London. That's one of the big shows so many big shows go to fozzyrock.com for all cities venues ticket information vip information don't miss out on meeting me and the rest of fozzy we are going to have a good time one last thank you to all the talk is jericho supporters all my sponsors really appreciate all you guys being with me next week i'm going to tell you all about the y2j 25th anniversary uh, a special edition with don callis lance storm uh, Lenny St. Clair, Dr. Luther. We're going to be talking all about the early days in Calgary and Winnipeg, training, uh, early days in Japan. The 25th anniversary week of Chris Jericho starts next week. I'm so excited to have you guys along. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks to Justin Hawkins of The Darkness. Thanks to Brian Slagle. Thanks to Cliff Burton. We'll see you next week. Peace, love, and hugs on Wednesday. Jericho's 25th anniversary. You're not going to want to miss this show. A big thank you and a big yeah, to all of you. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. 